Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to two separate passages of Scripture this morning. The first is, of course, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the second, which we will actually read first, is Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we'll begin in verse 14. So bookmark 1 Samuel 8 and then turn to Deuteronomy 17. And you can actually just, if you have a bookmark or a piece of paper, just keep it in Deuteronomy 17. We'll, we'll need it at the end. Now, I, I hope this illustration works. Uh, this is my, my thought this week of how, how to approach this text. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Mott and Bailey fallacy. Basically, it's a bad way to try to win an argument. And once you know about it, you'll see it all the time, especially in our current political and culture war environment. Now, I was going to go through the history of the Mott and Bailey and what they actually are. Um, And if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk with you about what those were. But in interest of simplicity, I'm just going to describe the fallacy. Right? So someone will make a wild, baseless statement, uh, a statement that is valid, uh, that is a statement that is subject to valid criticism. And when that criticism comes, when pushback comes, they retreat to a safe position, which virtually everyone agrees on. And I want to give you a silly example. I don't want to bring the warfare of the world into the church, and so this is, this is a silly example I thought of. Let's say Molly and I had you over for dinner, and we're all sitting around eating, and all of a sudden, I make the statement, you know, everyone should wear Crocs all the time. They're the superior footwear. And if you don't wear them, then you're probably a bad person. And if you're a bad person, you should probably lose your job. You're taken aback by this statement. But you boldly question this PCA teaching elder by saying, John, they are cheap plastic foam shoes that are mass produced. What about when it's cold and wet? Because Crocs have almost killed me several times walking on slick, wet concrete. What if I'm exercising? What do you expect me to wear? What about when I come to worship? What do you expect me to wear? You see, my initial argument has come under attack. And so what do I do in the Mott and Bailey? Well, I run to a safe place where virtually everyone would agree. And I would say something like, well, don't you want to have healthy feet? Don't you want to have feet that aren't in pain? Well, you could respond by saying, yes, John, I want healthy feet. I want feet that don't hurt, but I don't like your argument for how you got there. That, dear saints, is the Mott and Bailey fallacy, and you will see it all the time. A ridiculous statement is made. People will push back. And then they'll run to some safe statement upon which 
everyone virtually agrees. And if you'll give me a little bit of latitude, I think that idea might help us to make sense of what's going on in today's text. So what's the argument? Well, it's not over footwear. It's not over immigration or capitalism or the environment. The argument is about whether or not Israel should have a man to rule over them as a king. And it begins with the elders of Israel coming to Samuel and saying, Samuel, you're old. You won't be alive much longer. Your two sons are bad judges. And so what we need is a king. We need a king we can see, a king that can fight our battles for us, a king just like all the other people groups around us. Samuel, we need to finally get with the times and join the Iron Age with everyone else and not be left behind as a nation. That's their opening argument. And Samuel hears it and will see him respond and say, but this king will take from you and you will be his slaves. And they hear this valid critique, but they could respond by saying, well, hasn't God spoken about us having a king in the past? Is that true? Well, then give us a king to rule over us. That's the argument we're going to see today. But before we dive further, let's read our two texts. And again, we're going to read Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14 first. And then read 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, sorry, 1 Samuel 8. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, And dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So let's go to 1 Samuel 8, and we'll read the entirety of the chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. 
The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers And he will take the best of your vineyards, your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all these, all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. And make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever.
So we see the debate of the day in this text. Should Israel continue on with the status quo, with God raising up judges like Samuel to lead the people, or should they finally get a king like everyone else? That's the debate. And in verse 1, we see the circumstances that push Israel's elders to make this request. What's the first thing we see? Samuel is now an old man. They like Samuel, they respect Samuel, but they know that his days are numbered. They know that he won't be around forever. And they start thinking about the future. And they have this question of who will take Samuel's place once he dies. And they don't like their prospects. Because those prospects appeared to be Samuel's two sons, Joel and Abijah. Now this is the first we've heard of them. And what are we told? Well, they're judges in Beersheba, which is in the far south of Israel. And more importantly, they're bad apples that have fallen far from the tree. They're sons who did not walk in the ways of their father. We are told that they were greedy and they lusted after wealth. And so they took bribes and perverted justice. And the elders of Israel knew this. And they see Samuel walking slowly and stiffly with a cane. And they think, who's going to be in charge once he's gone? Not Joel and Abijah. Can't be them. They have disqualified themselves for office. They are dishonest. And so what if Samuel just named a king and placed him over us instead? You know, a king like our neighbors have. That's the logical solution. Well, that's the argument they bring to the geriatric Samuel. Now, to be faithful to the text, we don't actually see the elders come out and argue from Deuteronomy 17. We don't actually see them say, well, Samuel, Moses said, when you come to the land your Lord is giving you and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you. We don't see them cite Moses in their argument with Samuel. But they would have remembered Moses' words. They had them written down. They could have pointed to Deuteronomy 17 and said, see, It's time. Additionally, they would have remembered God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 17. When God told the father of their nation, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. They could point back and say, see, God promised that kings would come from Abraham. Seems like the time is right. Let's make this happen. And as we saw in our scripture reading, God had mentioned his people having kings over them prior to this point. We're going to get to the truth about those kings a little later. And we're going to get to the problematic motives in the elders of Israel. But first, let's just pause for a moment and ask, what should the elders of Israel have done? 
What should they have done? I mean, they have a very real problem. Samuel is mortal. He's not long for this world. His sons would make terrible leaders. So what should they have done? They should have prayed. This isn't me being overly simplistic. They should have prayed. They should have done the same thing they did in the previous chapter. I mean, last week, the people are in a hard place. They're defenseless. The Philistines are coming to attack them, and they cry out to their mediator. Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us. And what happened? Samuel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered. He thundered from the heavens and defeated the Philistines. But this week, it's not an enemy army that's threatening them. It's a couple corrupt judges. The people could have said, Samuel, we desire a godly, righteous man to guide us as you have done after you're gone. And so do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us so that he would provide a righteous judge to lead us. That's what they should have done. I mean, remember, God had provided Samuel for them when they were languishing under the terrible leadership of Eli's two sons. Why couldn't he do the same for them again? They should have repented of their unbelief, sought the Lord, trusted in his care. They should have come and listened to their mediator who relayed God's word to them, but they don't. Instead, they come making demands. They come with the logical, pragmatic ways of the world. They come with the tried and tested ways of other nations. But they aren't just some other nation. They're special. They're a divine creation. God had chosen a people and set them apart from the rest of the world. But they aren't acting like it. I want to remind you this morning that the church, not just our little congregation, the church, all the people of God from all time, the church is a special divine creation that our God has set apart from the rest of the world. It's not just another civic organization like Kiwanis or Rotary. It's not, heaven help us, a business. It's the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that wonderful line in the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. She is an utterly unique institution in human history. She is the visible kingdom of the Lord. She's the house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. 
The church has been established by our creator for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And she will continue to the very end of the world. But how often we forget all this. And what do we do? Instead of seeking the face of our head, the Lord Jesus, and going to him in prayer and repenting of sin, instead of that, we treat her like a normal human institution. And we turn to what we learned in business school. And we treat her as if she's a second business we're running. And in the end, we end up in a similar place where the elders of Israel are headed. In his commentary, Richard Phillips comments saying, quote, The Israelite elders reasoned that the proven solutions in worldly institutions would work just as well for a divine institution such as Israel. The same logic is displayed today when the church is urged to imitate the practices that make corporations so effective and efficient. How often it is said today that by copying worldly approaches to recruitment, marketing, and product delivery, the church can expand God's market share in the world. End quote. You know, I started off with my Mott and Bailey illustration, and this has to be one aspect of the ridiculous opening argument. Take this special people established by God and model her after worldly institutions. Treat her as if the only difference between her and your business is her tax-exempt status. Believe that you can expand the market share of a God who already owns everything. It's crazy. I need to keep going. Samuel is not happy with the demands of the elders. And he provides a great example for us by going to the Lord in prayer. And he says, Lord God, the elders are ready to replace me. And they have no interest in my sons judging them. And they ask me to appoint a king to rule over them, a king like all the other nations have. What would you have me do? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What's the answer he gets? The Lord says, obey the voice of the people. For it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Samuel, it's not you. It's me that they don't want. And see, see what he says. This is nothing new. They have been doing this since I brought them out of Egypt. Since the Exodus, they've been doing this. Samuel, it's not your, you they're rejecting, it's me. You know, in Psalm 118, we read that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. But what we've learned of the elders of Israel is that they want the exact opposite of that psalm. 
Now, they probably wouldn't have come out and said it, but their demand makes it clear that they would rather have a man as king that they could see as opposed to having God whom they could not see as king. And so God tells Samuel, obey their voice, give them what they want, only warn them beforehand. Warn them of what having a king will mean for them. And this is what we see Samuel do in verses 10 through 18. He says, listen to me, elders. These will be the ways of the king you want. You want a king like all the other nations have? This is what he's going to be like. This is Samuel countering their weak argument. And did you notice the word that's repeated over and over again? And I kind of helped you with some emphasis. What word was that? Take. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen. He will conscript soldiers and some of you will be forced to feed his army and equip them for battle. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards and orchards and then take a tenth of your grain and vineyards to give to his servants. You know, he's got to feed the bureaucracy, the cabinet, his administration. He will take your servants. He'll take your best young men. He'll take your donkeys and put them all to work on his projects. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And then Samuel wraps it up in verse 17 by saying something that the elders probably viewed as incendiary. And you shall be his slaves. Slaves, just like you were in Egypt. So be warned, elders, because if you go down this road... And I give you what you want. A day will come when you will cry out to the Lord because of your king, your taskmaster, that you chose, but the Lord will not answer you. Be warned. He will take, 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 take. And you will serve, serve, serve. If you want a king like the rest of the world, that's what you're going to get. So know from the start that he will take far more from you than what he will give to you. Well, that was Samuel's counter to their argument. How do they respond? Well, they continue in their folly. They would not listen to Samuel. And so they say, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations. Now, we've talked about one aspect of this already, but there's more that could be said. They're looking at everyone else around them. And they're saying, we want to be like them. More than we want to be holy and set apart. What is that? Well, it's something that plagues middle school students. And it's something that plagues high school students. And it's something that plagues adults. We despise stuff.
sticking out from a crowd and being different. We want to blend in with what is normal. Hidden from view within the crowd. Our indwelling sin makes us chafe at not being like everyone else. This is, to use the colloquialism, keeping up with the Joneses. But again, here's the thing, dear saints. If you belong to the Lord, you should be different. You should be different from the world around you. You should be different in the way you think and in the way you speak. Your interests should be different. The way you spend your money should be different. The way you raise your children should be different. The way you love your spouse should be different. The way you talk about your spouse when you're in the workplace among coworkers should be different. The way you approach your employment should be different. What you believe about your own heart and your own sin should be different. What you believe about your God should be different. As a child of God and as a member of his household, as a citizen of his kingdom, as a co-heir with Christ, as one who has his spirit indwelling you, you must be different from the world around you. But the people in verse 20 had no interest in this. Their goal was to be like everyone else. What else did they say? This is crazy. In the second half of verse 20, we want a king who will judge us, one who will rule over us and teach us and instruct us, as Samuel had. And then they say, we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. What? (laughs) We want a man to fight our battles for us? They already have a king who fights their battles for them. What happened in chapter 7? The Lord thundered from the heavens and scattered the Philistines. But they don't want him. They've rejected him. They'd prefer a substitute. So Samuel goes back to the Lord and reports what was said. And the Lord says, give them what they want. Make them a king. Now note, God is giving them what they want, but what he's giving them is not a blessing. It's a curse. You and I have the privilege of looking ahead in their history and seeing what's coming. And it doesn't take long. They have King Saul, and then they have King David, and then they have King Solomon. Solomon is the king who would build the first temple for the Lord. It would take seven years to build that temple. You know how long it took to build his palace? Thirteen years. And who built Solomon's palace? He didn't do it. They did it. They're the ones who slaved for 13 years to build Solomon's palace. Solomon took and took and took and took 
had tons of administrators. He had tons of soldiers. He had tons of flocks. He had tons of wives. He had tons of wealth. In Solomon's reign, we see exactly what Samuel warned the people of. Do you remember what the people did after Solomon died? The people went to his son, Rehoboam, and they said, Please, sir, your father laid a heavy burden, laid a heavy yoke upon us. Now that he's gone, now that he's gone, would you please lighten the load and we will serve you? Do you remember what Rehoboam said? This is my Baba translation, but he said, You ain't seen nothing yet. If you thought my father worked you hard, then just wait for what's coming. And the Lord answered their request. He gave them what they wanted, but it was not a blessing. Psalm 106, 15 highlights this. When it says, he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now, what do we do with that? I think it's this. The maturing Christian will thank the Lord for not answering every prayer and not giving us everything we want. You know, Garth Brooks was on to something in his song, Unanswered Prayers, wasn't he? Oftentimes, it is the blessing and kindness of God to not give us the thing we're asking him for. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis says, quote, Sometimes God's greatest kindness is in not answering our prayers exactly as we desire. How many mercies may hide here? His refusals are not indifference, but may be kindness, end quote. And I want you to know I experienced this just like you do. I have something I want. I have something I think would be good and helpful, and the Lord doesn't give it to me. And I can get frustrated and I can grow impatient. But you know what I have to preach to myself? John, he's holy and you're not. He's wise and you're not. He's good and you're not. So trust his actions more than you trust what you think is good and right for yourself at this moment. Here's another quote. I, know, I got a bunch of them, but they're, they're too good. This one's from Richard Phillips, and it gets at this. He says, quote, The more we realize how sinful our hearts are and how frequently our thoughts and desires run astray, the more we will humbly desire God to overrule in our prayers so that His wisdom will overcome our folly and his holiness will correct our sin, end quote. I'm convinced it is a mark of Christian maturity to say, Lord, thank you for not giving me 
what I want right now. I trust that you are good and you are wise and that you have a purpose behind everything you do and that you will provide for me everything I truly need. Thank him for unanswered prayers. Finally, we need to get back to my opening illustration. To make it work, the people have a bad argument where they say, we want a king like all the pagan nations have. We want to be like them. We want a king we can see. We want a king who will fight our battles for us. We want a king other than the God we currently have. And Samuel counters with the true and devastating critique If you get such a king, he will take, 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 and you will be his slaves. And then to complete my Martin Bailey illustration, they could then run to the universally agreed upon fact and say, well, God spoke of us having a king. So obviously it's possible to have a king that's not all bad. And to that we would say true. God did speak of a king in Deuteronomy 17. He did say, you may indeed set a king over you. But what are the next lines in Deuteronomy 17? Whom the Lord your God will choose. And then what do we see for the rest of the passage in Deuteronomy 17? We see a king described... That is nothing like the kings of the other nations. He will be your brother, an Israelite, not a foreigner. He won't take advantage of his kingship and build up a military machine and have a harem of many wives for himself and gather massive wealth. He won't be like Solomon. I mean, find me a human king that didn't aspire to be like Solomon. There's only been one. What else do we see about this king in Deuteronomy 17? He shall write for himself a copy of this law. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all his words. See, the king described is not like the kings of this world. He's not going to take advantage of the perks of being king. And he will subject himself to the word and law of God. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see sprinkled comments about this king whom the Lord would choose. We'll see God say to David, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom and your throne will be established forever. In Isaiah we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. The prophet Micah foretold, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who is too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. It is clear that God intended his people to have a king who would reign over them forever and ever. And this was the hope of God's people to have a good and righteous king, one who would 
lead them and instruct them and fight for them. But one of the big questions the people were asking as the Old Testament came to an end was, have the plans and promises of God failed? Because all of these kings, all of them, from Saul to Zedekiah, were all to some extent a bust. And God's people would remain in doubt until one day when three strangers from somewhere in the east would show up in Jerusalem and ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Please contrast that king, King Jesus, with the warning Samuel gives. Again, what does Samuel say? The king you want, the king like the nations, he will take, 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 and you will serve, serve, serve. But what of the king that God would choose? What of the Lord Jesus? He would give and give and give and give. And the only thing he would take of ours is our sin. So that he might die himself in our place. He is totally unlike the kings of the world. He was not born in a palace and placed in a golden crib. He was born in a stable and laid in a manger. He had no exquisite home. He would say himself, the birds have nests and foxes have holes, but I have nowhere to lay my head. He would be crowned with thorns. His last possessions, his clothing, would be stripped from him. And he would die on a cross. Because as he himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king gave his life so that we might no longer be slaves, but free from our sin which oppressed us. He gives eternal life to anyone who would trust in him. And he has now gone to prepare a place for all who love him, where he will share his inheritance and the blessings of God with redeemed sinners. That's the king we should desire. That's the king we should long to serve. That's the king that our all-wise, good, and holy God has given. And so the question to end, the question for all people everywhere, is will you serve and worship him? Or, like the crowd in Jerusalem, will you say, we do not want this man to reign over us? That's the question, Trinity. Will you submit to his good and eternal rule? Or would you prefer a king like all the nations of the world have? If you humble yourself, 
and you cry out to this king, I promise he will draw you to himself. And this good king will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this ancient history that has so much to say to us today. We thank you for your faithfulness to provide us the true king that we need. And Father, we do remember and confess that he is alive today. That he is on the throne, reigning and ruling over all things. And he is bringing one by one all things under his feet. And there is not one thing in this world, to quote my brother Abraham Kuyper, there is not one thing in this world that King Jesus does not look at and say, mine. Father, you have met our greatest need. And you have given us the greatest leader to teach us, to guide us, to fight for us, and to prepare a place for us. Father, I do long for the day when I can see him face to face. Father, we thank you for our King. Help us every day to be reminded of him and to not lose sight of him. We ask this in his most holy and precious name. Amen.